0: Psalm 38 is where we're going to be this morning. When you're little, all punishment feels like injustice, doesn't it? In, in fact, let me refrain from saying just when you're little. When you're old, all punishment feels like an injustice. You ever get pulled over? And the first thing you think of is, now how come he didn't catch all those vehicles that were going a hundred past me? You roll down the, uh, the window and you're like, officer, did you see that Ducati that just went weaving in and out of traffic 120 miles an hour past me? This is an outrage. Do you know? My tax dollars pay your salary. Right? It's an injustice. I'm taking this to court. I'll have your job. I remember having a conversation with one of our children. I don't remember which one. It actually was probably at some point all three of them, all right? But I remember having a a conversation with one of them shortly after this particular child had been disciplined. And I sat there next to this child on our stairs. Tears were streaming down the face. They were very, very upset. And in the midst of the tears, I was explaining that the reason why we discipline is because we love them. I said, we don't discipline other people's kids, do we? And of course the answer was, no, that would be ridiculous. Yes, because we don't love other people's kids the way we love our own children. Discipline, I explained, corrects our children and points them toward right ways of behaving. If we didn't love them, we would just let you go off and do whatever it is that you wanted to do And just turn out however you turned out. And let all of your own devices lead you to whatever outcome would happen. As you can imagine, to a kid in the midst of receiving discipline, that made absolutely no sense. The kid looked at me and said, No, that doesn't make any sense at all. You don't discipline me because you love me. You discipline me because you hate me. In our psalm this morning, David is dealing with the discipline from the Lord. Specifically, David has committed sins that he's being disciplined for. And it's designated as a psalm for anyone that's in the midst of such kind of discipline from the Lord. So let's look at our passage here in Psalm 38. It says, a psalm of David for the memorial offering. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you, my heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous. They are mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We ask that you'd help us to see this. Perhaps there may be in this room people who are currently in darkness, who are hard-hearted to your word. I pray that you would use this opportunity now to open their eyes to the truth of your word. Perhaps there are some in the midst of your discipline who feel anguish and angst over the, the fact that they are in the midst of such turmoil, they don't know which way to turn. Frustration. Perhaps they're even blaming everyone else for all of their sins. We pray that you would open their eyes. Perhaps there are others of us who are going through this life just skipping merrily, thinking we're in good standing with you, and yet we are ignorant of sin that's in our heart. I pray that you would reveal it through your word. As we seek to understand and apply, may we all come under your word as responsible to be obedient to it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the title of this psalm gives us a little bit more than what we're used to. Normally, we see a psalm of David. In this case, we get just a little bit more. It adds at the very end of that, for the memorial offering. It could also be read in memory. So we're kind of unsure as to whether this is for a specific offering or whether David is calling back in memory. So it could be formal, like meant to be used in some sort of formal worship service when you're giving a memorial offering, or it could be informal. David might be looking back on a time when he sinned, and he's remembering this so that he'll never forget, so that he holds it in his memory. It might also be used during that specific time of the memorial offering, which is what I think it is used for. Now, a memorial offering is part of, of another offering. So you're giving an offering, a sacrifice for sin, and there's a portion of that offering that you're pulling off and you're using as a specific means. It could be part of an animal or it could be part of a grain, but the priest is taking that as a specific offering for you and basically the idea is you're trying to call the Lord's attention to something. You're trying to draw his attention more specifically to a need that you have. Maybe to pay special attention to your case, which is what David seems to be doing here toward God as he brings this offering. He's trying to call God's attention, evoke a response from the Lord. Maybe even to say something like to the Lord, I'm serious. Really listen to me. Hear what I'm saying. I need your help. And that seems to be what David is doing here. He's wanting the Lord to pay special attention to answer this petition in a way that he might not ordinarily do. And so he brings his sacrifice to the altar. David is is feeling, or maybe he has felt, the hand of discipline of the Lord upon him. And in this psalm, we can imagine David is bringing his sacrifice to the altar and and, and on the altar there before the Lord he pulls off a special portion as a memorial of that offering to hope to, to draw special attention to his cause. And you can see that there at the end of verse 21. He says, Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. He's wanting the Lord to come speedily fast, hurry up and address this situation. We've seen this before. David has been in dire straits in the past. He's been in a situation where he's been stuck in a pickle, you might say, and he wants the Lord to come to his defense. But this is slightly different. And the reason this is slightly different is because David knows that He's actually guilty here. Normally he's wanting the Lord to come to his defense because he's he's innocent of the charges that people are levying against him, but in this case that's not the case. He says in the in verse one, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. So so the main difference in this psalm, though David expresses similar things before, is that he sinned and he's feeling the discipline of the Lord specifically for his sin. The psalm has, has two basic sections to it. And in the first, you see David suffers physically from the Lord's discipline. So there's a physical component to his suffering from the Lord's discipline. That's, how, that's part of the way he knows that he is being disciplined by the Lord, is that physically something is wrong with him. And, and there's two possibilities of the way you could see his physical suffering here. One is that the Lord has actually given him a plague has actually physically afflicted him with a disease of some sort. Look in verse 3. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. Look at verse 5. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. Look at verse 7. For my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. All of these here give the distinct impression that what David is going through is some sort of illness, maybe sores or boils of some sort it might look like, that his that, uh, that senses were brought upon the Lord uh, himself, that, he, that the Lord has inflicted him with this. Kind of like, in a sense, like Job, except he's guilty of his sin. Now, you might be tempted to think, well, oh, that's so Old Testament. Or maybe even that the Old Testament is kind of weird that the Lord would inflict, bring a plague upon someone because of their sin. But I want to remind you of what we're dealing with here. This isn't merely an Old Testament thing. Remember, Paul says to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight 28-30, he says, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This is in the Lord's Supper. When you have the Lord's Supper, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. In other words, if he doesn't reflect upon his own sin, confess those, he doesn't deal with those, he drinks judgment upon himself. Verse 30 That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. What do you do with that? You've taken the Lord's Supper improperly. And that is why many of you have become sick and some have died. Essentially, they're taking the Lord's Supper while they have outstanding sin that they fail to examine. They know that it's there, but they fail to confess it. They don't want to confess it. They don't want to live openly and honestly, and yet they want to take the Lord's Supper for themselves. And what Paul says is you're drinking judgment upon yourself. And as a result, the Lord has inflicted them, in some cases with death, cutting short their life. So now that I've scared all of you from eating the Lord's Supper again, suffice it to say that there's a kind of judgment that the Lord brings upon His people, whereby He actually uses physical malady, physical forms of suffering, as a form of discipline. So it's not out of you know, the norm that David might be inflicted with that kind of, of illness. But I also want to be careful here. That doesn't mean that every sickness is a form of discipline, you understand. Just because the Lord uses sometimes that to discipline His children doesn't mean that the only means He uses is sickness for discipline. Nor is always sickness discipline. We're not even sure that David is really physically sick. Remember, what we're reading here is poetry. And so sometimes he can use that kind of poetic language of a plague, he even calls it a plague, to express how he feels about the discipline. That the Lord is bringing such an anguish upon him that it feels like he has a real plague. As an example of this, look at verse 4. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. Look at verse 6. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. Look at verses 8 and 9. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. Look at verse 10. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. So, so some of the verses sound like he's got a physical plague. He has a disease that the Lord has inflicted him with. Maybe appendicitis or cancer or something like that. And then other verses sounds like he has a psychological agony. That he, he's being pressed so hard and he's in, driven to such a state of depression or maybe anxiety That it feels like a physical form of torment, like he's got a disease. Or, why pick between the two? Maybe he's got both. It's possible. The point is, we can't dismiss either one. David could be going through either one of these, and he's specifically calling these out as a form of the Lord's discipline. Both of these are a form of the Lord's discipline. Now, can we call all physical sickness? Discipline? No. Can we call all depression or anxiety? Discipline? No. But we can't necessarily rule them out either. Now remember Job. He suffered physical torture. He was even driven to depression. He was driven to despair. And do you remember what the result of that was for his friends? His friends gathered around him, and they felt like they were pretty right to say, Job, we know you've sinned in some way. Obviously. Obviously. The Lord doesn't just crush people with depression or anxiety or physical boils or sores. You lost all your kids, you lost your property, you lost your money, you lost all these things. You had to have done something to really anger the Lord. Were they right in the end? No. They were actually called out for preaching a false gospel to Job and told to repent of their sin. Turns out they accused him of sin that he didn't commit. How do we know then whether or not the sickness, the illness, the depression, the anxiety, the things that are around us are a result of the Lord's discipline or merely a consequence of living in this life? How do we know which one they are? How do we know whether they're a result of the Lord's discipline or merely Him just testing us and strengthening our faith? Well, I think David clues us in to at least a bulk of the answer there in verse 4. Look at what he says. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. What is he saying? It's not just that he has agony. It's not just that he has depression or anxiety or maybe physical ailments. It's not just that he's sick. He's also sick and he knows precisely the reason why he's sick in the midst of his suffering. It seems as though he's suffering, and all that keeps coming to mind, all that keeps weighing on his heart, are the copious amounts of sin that he continues to deal with, and that he's just let slide, that he's just kind of scooted over, or he's hoped maybe God would ignore this, or maybe I'm justified in this sin. He's persisted in this sin. That he's allowed to go on without properly dealing with it. That helps make sense of verses 5 and 6. Look at what he says. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning. Look at verse 8. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. The foolishness that David seems to be talking about here is the foolishness of sinning. And the wounds that he seems to be talking about are the wounds created by sin. They fester. They stink. He senses them. He knows what sin he's dealing with, what sin he's sitting on. It's all coming to mind. Do you think that's just David bringing those to his own mind? No. That's the Spirit of God poking him and letting him know this is not just physical suffering. This is not just depression and anxiety. This is not just uh, some sort of sickness. You know exactly what's causing this. All that keeps coming to mind is his sin. It's ongoing willful ignorance of sin that it's caused this spiritual kind of turmoil and anguish to fester under the throes of spiritual depression. So I think that if we're to take anything from this particular form of discipline, from this psalm, it's that this kind of anguish, this kind of physical suffering... We know that it's discipline because it's a direct result of our own sin and the Lord brings that sin to mind. And when he does, there's no question in your mind as to whether you are guilty or not. That's one way we definitely know that what's on us is not just sickness. It's not just ills. It's the Lord's hand that's upon us. But that's not the only kind of suffering that results from David's sin. David also suffers socially from the Lord's discipline. There's another form of the Lord's discipline that's also come to him is a social discipline. Look at verse 11. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague and my nearest kin stand far off. So first and foremost, he's ostracized by his friends. They're put off by him. Now perhaps he's suffering physically, To the point where he has sores and boils, and especially in an Old Testament context, he is not welcome inside the camp if he's got sores or boils. So potentially he could be meaning that, in which case he has to stand far away and his friends have to stand far away from him. Or perhaps he's in a state of inner anguish and he's walking about in this mopey state and his depression has left him so miserable to be around that his friends have just deserted him altogether. When he says that his friends stand aloof, he means that they stand against him. They're not friendly towards him. They criticize him. They've turned on him. They keep their distance because they know precisely what's going on with him and they don't want to catch it. This is also a frequent companion to the Lord's discipline that we see. Not just physical suffering, not just spiritual and emotional suffering, but social suffering. Speaking Anecdotally, of course, from my own life and, and also the observation that I've, I've seen from others, that kind of isolation that one feels when the Lord's hand of discipline is on them, it can be real or it can be imagined. It can be both and sometimes. There are times when one's sin is so atrocious that the community of faith has no response but to send that person outside the camp, to excommunicate that person. Jesus in Matthew chapter 18, Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, both remind us that that kind of form of excommunication, of sending someone out because their sin is so atrocious, is necessary from time to time. Not because you want to be mean, but because sometimes it's the last-ditch effort to actually wake someone up in their sin to help them know what you're doing is odorous to the Lord. It's not to be tolerated at all, and you need to repent of it and return. But far more often, when one is in the throes of, dis- of depression, especially depression that is brought about by sin and a discipline from the Lord, The person tends to imagine that all of their friends and their family members are having a grand old time without them, and it only seems to exacerbate the problem. And they sink further into depression. And I think both God and Satan use this kind of social isolation, whether real or imagined, for different reasons. Satan obviously uses it to drive the sinner deeper into despair. No one loves you. No one cares about you. Everyone hates you. Everyone's having a great time without you. You're all alone. And you continue to drive deeper into despair. But God uses this, I think, as a means of waking the sinner up. Do you realize... What your sin is actually doing in your life, it's leading you to further isolation, to separate yourself from the body. It's leading you to have less and less friends. You need to wake up. It's in this position that he finally might say, you know, what am I doing? Why have I... I, It's my sin that's left me here. It's my sin is the reason that all my friends have left me. But notice that for David, it's not just friends It's even his enemies are gloating over him. Look at verse 12. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate uh, meditate treachery all day long. Look at verse 16. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. Look at 19 and 20. But my foes are vigorous. They are mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good Accuse me because I follow after good. So in other words, David's enemies are aware of his sin and they continue to mock him. He says he follows after good and they they don't hate him for good reasons. He follows after good on the whole. But now when he's made a mistake, when his foot has slipped, they pounce upon him and they see his hypocrisy and they seize upon his hypocrisy calling him a hypocrite. Now normally, David obviously is asking for vindication from his enemies. You know, Lord, I'm innocent in all of this, but now he knows that he's actually in the wrong and that his enemies actually have some kind of foothold here. David's been honest, but he knows that his foes hate him wrongfully. They hate him because he follows after the Lord on the whole. And now they've chosen to seize upon this mistake and and, and capitalize on it and make fun of the faith that he professes to have. His foot has slipped. And he doesn't want them to have the final say. So David has been socially ostracized. Like he perhaps never has before experienced. He's about ready to give up. He says in verse 13, But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear. And in whose mouth are no rebukes. He's speechless. He can't even hear the critiques of the people around him because he's been so dazed and confused by his own sin. People are yelling at him, but he he can't hear what they're saying. It's like that that scene in a movie, you know, where the main character gets punched and all of a sudden the camera looks from behind their eyes at the world around them as they see it. And everything is blurry and shaking, and you hear people talking, but you can't make out what they're saying, and, and he can't seem to make sense of anything that's happening. Everything is going on in slow motion, and all the voices around. That's what David is describing here. I can't hear, I'm like a mute man who can't even speak. I can't, I can't respond, I can't say anything. I'm just I'm concussed by the, the kind of blow that they're giving to me. In other words. David is sitting here on the stairs, tears running down his face. He's just received the spanking from the Lord in the form of physical anguish, in the form of depression, in the form of social rejection. And it's possible that you might be there with him. And you might be thinking to yourself or wondering for what possible reason could God ever deliver this kind of severe blow to his children. Maybe even as we read in 1 Corinthians, you thought, that can't be true. Can it? How could that be possible? How could a loving God strike his offspring like this? I mean, wouldn't this be classified more as hate than love? when the Lord comes down in discipline like this on His own child, just as that child on the stairs can't fathom for what possible reason the parent might discipline Him, it seems to Him like the least loving act a parent could possibly render is to come in judgment like this and discipline me. Why on earth would God, the most loving Father of all, Call it tender care when He disciplines us like this. See, I fear that in the drunken stupor of our own sin, we have far too little regard for the holiness of God. Perhaps we come to passages like these where we see one of God's own children like David or maybe the Corinthians passages I mentioned a minute ago. Where the Corinthians are given sickness and even swift death, Paul says, is a, is a means of discipline, essentially. And we think to ourselves, well, that's got to be the devil. God would, would never do that, surely, especially to his own. And we want to distance God from it. No, may it never be said of God that He ever brings this kind of affliction to any of His children specifically for what they've done. Oh my goodness, may it never be said of God that He would ever do that kind of thing. Because we presume nothing could ever cause God to act in this way. But this is because we think nothing of God's holiness and His justice. We think nothing of it. But what if, what if we read this psalm just a little bit differently? What if in this psalm we actually saw the love, grace, mercy, holiness, and justice of God all coming together at once? What if we saw the Lord's discipline of David, even the Lord's discipline of us, as an act of His love, His grace, His mercy, His holiness, and His justice all at once. Well, first of all, there's David. Who is facing what he calls in verse 1, God's anger and His wrath. But you understand that David is not facing the fullness of God's wrath or His anger. To fill the fullness of God's wrath would mean instant death for David, and banishment to hell for all eternity, eternity where he would be separated from God. So in the midst of feeling God's discipline, he's already sensing God's mercy. But if it's true that these psalms are also Jesus' psalms, then in order to really see the extent of God's holiness, His justice, His mercy, His grace, and His love, perhaps we go back to the very beginning of this psalm and we see it through the lens of Calvary. Shall we? Let's go back. Just look down at your text. Take your Bible. Look at, lay your eyes on verse 1. Let's look at this psalm through the lens of Calvary. Jesus actually was the one to face the full anger and wrath of God. But look at verse 2. The arrows of God's army were trained directly on Christ's body as He was run through with nails and with spear. His flesh, from verse 3, gave way because of God's indignation and ultimately death because of the iniquity that was on Him was too much for Him. The wounds on His back and brow festered and stunk because of the foolishness of sin. He was in anguish and tumult and mourning of verses 6 to 8 as He screamed, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? Ultimately His strength failed and He died. Whose friends and companions left Him truly but Jesus on the cross? One had even conspired against Him and turned Him in. His enemies laid a trap. Imagine the jeers that were said of Him around the cross. If this really is the Son of God, they said, as they presumed that the sin that He had committed was the reason God was not responding to His pleas. Like a deaf man who couldn't hear and a mute man who couldn't speak, He didn't answer even His harshest critics as they accused Him of all kinds of blasphemies. So how serious is God about holiness and justice? He's serious enough to send His own Son to the cross and kill Him for it. As we look at the cross, there we see Jesus dying in our place, and what we also see is the seriousness with which God takes sin. But how, seriousness, how serious is God about love and and grace, and mercy. Well, the sins that Jesus died for weren't His own. They were yours. The sins that He died for were yours and mine. Jesus suffered on the cross as though these were His sins. But far being His own, they were mine. They were yours. God crushed Him for my iniquities. But it wasn't just my iniquities. It was all of God's children. Isaiah, an Old Testament prophet, even numbers himself among the ones whom Jesus died for. He says in Isaiah 53, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. That's right, even the Old Testament saints who believed God, they too were credited with the righteousness that Christ purchased in a future they didn't yet know. And certainly that includes David. So David is here in tears before God, asking God not to leave him, not to forsake him. And we're right there along with David and the rest of God's children throughout history, in the midst of affliction, asking, "Why would a loving God be so severe as to discipline us this way?" And what do we see at the end of this psalm in verse 18? But David gets straight to the point of the reason for God's discipline. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry. For my sin. Then he says in verse 22, Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. But perhaps we along with David don't realize even the terrible speed of God's mercy which is on us before we could ever possibly realize it. That our salvation has come to us in Jesus before we were ever born, you understand? Before we were ever born, the salvation of the Lord had come to us. Far from His wrath, we're experiencing the tender care of divine discipline. This is how He brings us to the foot of the cross. It's how He removes from us all the crutches that we would love to lean on that are other than Him. He only disciplines those He loves. Our help has come to us precisely in the discipline of the Lord, who has not spared the rod of affliction on His own children so that they would not be spoiled but so that they would see their sin and they would come running in repentance. The great Puritan Thomas Watson said this, Affliction teaches us what sin is. In the word preached, we hear what a dreadful thing sin is, that it's both defiling and damning, but we fear it no more than a painted lion. Therefore, God lets loose affliction. And then we feel sin in the bitter fruit of it. A sickbed often teaches more than a sermon. Water in the glass looks clear, but set it on fire and the scum boils up. In prosperity, a man seems to be humble and thankful. The water looks clear. But set this man a little on the fire of affliction and the scum boils up. Much impatience and unbelief appear. Oh, says a Christian, I never thought I had such a bad heart as now I see I have. I never thought my corruptions had been so strong and my graces so weak. Christian, have you ever received the hand of discipline from the Lord? Perhaps you've been in anguish and turmoil over your sin. Perhaps you've maybe been rebuked by a fellow brother or sister. Maybe they've stepped in and they've corrected your sin. They've called you out on it. Maybe other pagans from which you associate have, have joined in and they've seen, hey, you're just like us. You say you believe those things, but you're just like us. It would be easy to lash out in anger at the hand of the one that corrected you. It'd be easy to say, that's not fair, that's unloving, that's unjust, how dare you say that to me? But instead, should it not cause you to examine yourself? Shouldn't it cause you to think? Was the rebuke right? Was whatever they said correct? Have you been skirting around sin that you know is there? That perhaps has been exposed to you a number of times? You've seen it in the Word. Maybe you've heard it in something preached or something sung or something read. Or you've seen this or you've observed this in your heart. And you've chosen instead to just go on willfully ignoring it. Has that person come in and said something that's right to you? Then rather than lash out at the one that spoke to you, Rather than lash out at the one that rebuked you, you instead should rejoice. Do you know why? Because you've received the hand of discipline from the Lord. And the reason that you should rejoice is because the Lord only disciplines His own. You know, the inverse could be true. That you could be skirting around sin and everything that I've just said, everything that we've just read is such a foreign language to you you never experienced that before in your life. And as, you, as you're listening and you're thinking about it, you're like, I don't... I don't know that I've ever really felt that. I've been in sin before, I think. I've ignored it before. but I've never really felt that kind of discipline. I've... Been able to seem to go on sinning without any recourse. This too should be a wake up call. What does it say if the Lord is content to leave you in your sin? What does it say about your status in the family of God that you seem to be able to go on sinning without any recourse? without feeling guilt over it, without responding to the Word, without having anybody in the body step in and correct you? What does it say about your status inside the family of God? What would it say about a parent who seems to let his kid go on sinning without any form of correction? Would you say about that parent that they love that child or that they hate that child? Maybe you've been told by your parents, by your friends, by the people that you surround yourself with, you're just fine. You're right. You have a right to be upset and angry. Yeah, that person that you're gossiping about, they, they deserve it. That person that you're slandering, that you're mad at, that you seem to have this, this undying hatred towards, they deserve it. You know what they did? I agree with you. Hear me clearly, that person hates you. They hate you. They would rather see you walk down a happy road to hell than walk down the road of righteousness which has bumps along the way. Your sin is odorous to God. It stinks. He hates it. And for it, you deserve the fury of his wrath. And only for a little while, he has stayed his hand of justice. But one day, the hand of justice will come falling down on top of you. Now think about it. If he did not spare his own son, but killed him for our sin, then do you think that you will somehow escape his justice? Do you think somehow when he comes to your case he all of a sudden won't care about those sins? No. Friend, I have good news. Jesus paid the penalty for sin. He suffered so you don't have to. So wouldn't it be better for you now to agree with David here as he says in verse 18 and confess your iniquity to him? Shouldn't it be better for you To feel sorry for your sins and receive from Christ a full pardon. Wouldn't it be better to submit your life to Christ as King now and live your life under His charge? As painful as that road might be, wouldn't it be better to just eat crow now? To actually confess all your sins? To make amends with all those in the way that you feel wronged by that you're holding bitterness towards. Wouldn't it make more sense now to confess those as sin and instead run to Jesus full charge and be forgiven? Wouldn't it be better to come before the throne of God and marvel at the grace and mercy and love shown to us in the cross? Wouldn't it be better to do that than to march to the road of hell, down the road of hell, without any hurdles. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's so hard sometimes to not only see the text that is in front of us, but to respond accordingly. There are perhaps numerous people in the assembly today as we read this psalm feels like a foreign language who have never been in the kind of place David is here who have never felt that kind of anguish over their own sin we become so immune to it we're, we're so numb to it we don't even sense How terrible it is. We pray that you would remind us. We pray that you would help us. We pray that you would open our eyes. We pray that you would humble us. So much of it that stands in our way is simply pride. We can see the sin. You've identified the sin to us. We know exactly what it is. But our pride says... No. That would be too humiliating. But Lord, I pray you would level us to the ground. And that we would just live there in a constant state of humility. Realizing the affliction that you've brought to us as your hand of discipline. Father, we also pray that the hand of discipline wouldn't be too heavy upon us. That you would lift it as we confess our sins. That you would demonstrate how faithful you are to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.